Steve Lawson, in his book, The Final Call, I think captured the scene and certainly I think uh, maybe many of us, not all of us, will remember this scene. But it was the wedding of the century and they were the very definition of romance. They were the epitome of love and marriage, at least some would say, 750 million people watched their wedding around the globe via satellites. They watched the world's most eligible bachelor, Prince Charles, Duke of Windsor, exchange wedding vows with British aristocrat Lady Diana Spencer. And the entire world swooned as these two lived out their fantasy uh, to the world and to millions. It was all something out of a fairy tale. There was all the pomp, all the circumstance you would expect of a royal wedding. The date was July 29, 1981. The scene, if you remember, was at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And with England's social elite present and Her Majesty's highest ranking dignitaries in attendance, Prince Charles stood at the front of the church. He was dressed in full military splendor, awaiting his bride. Down the long center aisle preceded Lady Diana, dressed in an exquisite, long-flowing wedding dress. And as the royal couple exchanged vows, they pledged their unconditional commitment, their unwavering loyalty to each other. And when the high church ceremony was over, the newlyweds descended the front steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. And with every church bell in London chiming, they mounted the horse-drawn, gold-encrusted royal coach to ride off into the sunsets. The streets of London, you remember, were lined with thousands of admirers craning their necks just to get a glimpse of the newly wedded royal couple. And as the two dashed off to their honeymoon, they were so much in love, so full of life, it seemed. But something tragic happened. The clock struck 12 on this real-life Cinderella story. And somewhere along the way, you remember, their lives grew apart. Their love grew strangely cold, stale, we could say, stagnant, facades were erected, pleasantries were exchanged, public appearances were made, but it was all for show. And tabloid reports were confirmed when on December 9th, 1992, Prime Minister John Major cleared his throat and broke the disheartened news to the House of Commons. Tragically, there would be a royal, at least at that point, separation. Not a divorce, but a mutual coexistence. A truce. The royal highnesses would remain legally married, keep their royal positions, but they would now live in separate houses, lead separate lives, and go their separate ways. And England's most celebrated romance had become a national disgrace. And of course, later, they would divorce. But far greater than the publicized, trivial romance between Prince Charles and Diana is your relationship this morning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Ours is the greatest love story ever known. The King of Kings courted us, lowly peasants that we were, pursued us to become his royal bride. And at first, we were the very definition of romance, the very epitome of love and marriage. Our hearts, do you remember that day, were so full of passion when you trusted Christ? So full of excitement. Bible study, the Bible itself was thrilling. 
prayer was an unbroken communion with God. Worship was incredible. We savored being in God's presence, but that was then and maybe something tragic has happened. Maybe this morning as you've come into this place of worship, your love for Christ has cooled off. Listen, beloved, it happened in Ephesus, and it may be a reality for some of you today. And so I invite you to open your Bible from the scripture that we read this morning in Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the Lord Jesus Christ's words to the church at Ephesus. Last week, just as summer has come, we looked at Laodicea, and I thought maybe this morning, just a reminder to us at the church at Ephesus. Now remember that as we dive into at least this church, it's the first one of seven churches that are listed in Revelation 2 and 3, and it makes sense because if John is on the island of Patmos, he went in a circle around Asia, and Ephesus would be the first one that he would come to. But remember, I said last week that as we come to these seven churches, or look at this church at Ephesus, that it was a historical church in Asia Minor. So as he writes to the church at Ephesus, it is a literal church. Somebody wrote me an email this week and said, thanks for that reminder. Sometimes I, I just think that it's the scripture and he's writing metaphorically. No, he, he wrote to the church at Ephesus. There are some scholars that believe that the seven churches are the seven time frames of church history that this depicts this century the second church depicts this century. We don't believe that. I think that is more imagination than interpretation. These are, number one, historical churches in Asia Maya. Number two, they are representative of different churches today. And so you've got Ephesus and Sardis. And we looked last week at Laodicea. They represent the types of churches that existed then but also exist now. And then finally, I think thirdly, they're representative of individual Christians today. And so sometimes we say, if the shoe fit, where's it? But as we come into the text this morning, you might say, what happened at Ephesus? I mean, how could he make that stinging indictment, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first? What, what, what took place there? What, what happened to the church at Ephesus? I mean, can you imagine the church gathered to get a letter from Jesus Christ and it's addressed to Ephesus or it's addressed to Grace Church of the Valley and then they read this letter? Well, what I want to do here for our time this morning is I want us to take a look at just five details that will enable us to be conquerors in a hostile world, okay? Just five details, we'll look at the details, but it's pushing us to be a conqueror in a hostile world. And so that's our thesis. But let's dive into the text. First, the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus. In fact, you can see it there in 2.1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus writes, Ephesus, obviously the book of Ephesians, was, you know, the people, the believers at a, the church in, in Ephesus, Ephesians was written to it. But there was a church there. There was a city there. In fact, when you think biblically, Ephesus was a strategic city. I mean, I think we go by the sign here in Kingsburg, at least where our auditorium sits. I think it says 11 or 12,000. Understand when the angel, or to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? Ephesus was 300,000 people alone. And when you think about the city of Ephesus, it was a thriving business center. That city of Ephesus sat around four major highways that intersected into each other. And it would lure businessmen from all over the Roman province of Asia. It was really kind of a hub. It was a business center. It was a cultural center. 
And there were many things going on in that city. But it was also the dubious city of the false god Diana. Sometimes it's called Diana. Sometimes it's called Artemis. And this temple of this idol was recognized at that time as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But the worship of Artemis was vile. They had thousands of priestesses that were little more than ritual prostitutes. It basically was a den of iniquity. And there was this high erected statue to Artemis. Some people, if you can picture a football field, put two of those together. And that's what rose out of the sky in the city of Ephesus. It was a cesspool of sin. It was in that that the church was started. Paul, on his second missionary journey, it's interesting, wanted to go through this Asia. But in 16.6, it says that he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. In other words, he wanted to go, but he was forbidden. The Holy Spirit didn't let him go to Asia. However, just a, just a brief piece of history here. On his third missionary journey, he spent at least two years in Ephesus ministering in public in private settings. And sometimes in that that time, the church was founded. In fact, would you look back in your Bible in the book of Acts just for a second? I I can't go into all the details, but let me just show you enough. I mean, we know that Ephesus was a church. Paul wrote Ephesus. We know that this time, John the Apostle is turning on the island of Patmos, and God and the Lord Jesus Christ is giving him a message to Ephesus. But if you look back in Acts chapter 19, in verse 1, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came, there it is, third missionary journey, to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. That was his custom. He went into a town and he preached. He went into a town and he made disciples. It was that way in the early church. It should be that way now. We have no other plan, no other program than the power of the Word of God. If you will, look over at chapter 19 and verse 8. He entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when they became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Look at verse 11. It says there that God was doing some extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. Verse 18, glance down there. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. I mean, it was an incredible time. They burned them in front of everybody. But a problem arose. Look at verse 23. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who had made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together that the workmen in similar trades and said to the men, we know that from the business we have our wealth. And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia, this Paul is persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, whom she or she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, They were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so it forced, beloved, did it not? Paul's departure from Ephesus. Now, when he left Ephesus, he put in charge there a young man of the church. Do you remember his name? His name is 
Timothy, okay? And then later, Paul ended up in prison, and he penned Ephesians to Timothy. And now, beloved, many years later, the Apostle John will pen a second letter to the Ephesians, this one from Jesus Christ. You say, well, what did Jesus say? We'll look back in Revelation 2. What did he say? Well, it's there in 2.1. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, he mentions there the words of him who holds the seven stars. There's some question among scholars. We can't be quite sure. What is the star that he is holding? Well, the star is either an angel, that there's an angel given over to these churches that watch the conduct of the churches, or the star would be a human. Now, first, I would just say nowhere in all of the Bible are angels placed in leadership positions in the church. So we would say, I would say, that human messengers in this context seems most likely. The angel and the star are used both in Old and New Testament to refer to human beings. And human beings are responsible for the conduct in the church, not angels, according to Hebrews 13, 17. So these seven angels, these seven messengers, represent the human leadership of the church. And so the messenger, the angel, and the one who's holding the stars can best be understood as the leader among leaders in the church. It represents the godly leadership or the leadership of the church. Look back just for a second at chapter 1 and verse 20. It says there, as for the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels. Now remember I mentioned last week the angels, the Greek word is angelos. It's messenger. It, and we believe a human messenger. So there in 120, the seven stars, okay, are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So beloved, as he pins this letter to the church at Ephesus, Christ is holding the seven stars, it says in 2.1, in his right hand. It is signifying his authority over the church. Though at times the church seems to limp and be weak at large. Here the message from the word of God by the spirit of God is that Jesus Christ is holding the stars and he's holding them in his right hand. Why? Because the churches are under the control, his control, of the glorified Christ. And it results, beloved, both in protection from the church and purging to the church. Now, it could be that maybe the most frightening thing is mentioned in 2.1. He's got the churches in his right hand. Look at the end of 2.1. He's walking among the seven golden lampstands. And so I mentioned in 120, the lampstands are in this vision. The lampstands, according to 120, are the churches. And what it's saying, beloved, by the Spirit of God, this day, Jesus Christ is walking amongst the lampstands. He's holding the churches under His control, even as we speak. He's in the middle of Grace Church of the Valley. He's not on the side. Oh, maybe to the church at Laodicea, they had put him outside. And so he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice, open the door and let me come in. But he is in 2-1, the one who's walking in the middle of these lampstands. And beloved, what that is a picture of is that he knows our church. He knows our hearts. He commends us. He rebukes us. He challenges us. So there, number one, and that first detail is the church at Ephesus. But secondly, he compliments the church at Ephesus. The compliments to Ephesus. In fact, look at 2.2. Two. He says, I know your works. 
your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. He says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. He compliments the church at Ephesus. Beloved, as he holds the churches in his right hand, as he's walking in their midst, he says, I know something about Ephesus. He's the all-knowing, all-seeing God, if you will, as the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows all things. His knowledge is both encouraging and, frankly, scary. In fact, you can see it there where he says, I know your works. Would you glance down in chapter 2, verse 9? He says it to all of them. To the church at Smyrna, he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Glance down at verse 13. He says to the church at Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He knows all things. Glance down in 2.19 when he says to the church at Thyatira, he says, I know your works. In fact, look at the end of chapter 3. Actually, chapter 3, verse 1, at the end of verse 1, he says to the church at Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so the Lord is all-knowing. He's walking in the midst of the lampstands. But as I said here, out of the word of God, he compliments Ephesus. In fact, he tells them five virtues that he compliments them for. Okay, And I'll just touch on these. But look what he says in 2.2 at the beginning. He says, I know your works. In other words, number one here, they were a serving church. And I don't know what you think when, you, when it comes to Ephesus. But he says there, does Jesus, I know your works. In other words, I know your service. This church at Ephesus, they were not spectators. They had skin in the game. Their jersey is dirty. I mean, they're not coasting on past accomplishments 30 years ago when the church started or when you came to Christ and you were busy and you were serving. They're still working. So they're a serving church. But that's not all. Secondly, look what he says in verse 2. He says, and your toil. I know your works and your toil. They were a sacrificing church. Listen, when you think of Ephesus, they were toiling. And the word here, kapiao, is toiling to the point of exhaustion. They're just not on cruise control. They're not one and done on the Lord's day. Man, they're serving. But here, secondly, they're sacrificing. They're working to the point of exhaustion. They are perspiring for the Lord. They gave of their time. They gave of their energies to the point of fatigue. One commentator said Ephesus was a beehive of industry. So when you think about this church, understand number one, they're serving. Number two, they were a sacrificing church. And number three, they were a steadfast church. Look at verse two again. He says, your toil. And then he says, and your patient endurance. In other words, that's that word that we looked at James Hupomene, it's the idea to stay under, to remain under the weight. This church was enduring. They were steadfast. They were, if you will, had a courageous spirit in the midst of great, great difficulties. Ephesus, beloved, in many ways, was a rock. They're complimented here. Sometimes when I was thinking that they're a rock, it reminds me of that rock at Morro Bay when you go out there. It's just the, the closer you get to it, the more it looms. And the more you're under it, the more you see the massiveness of it. And I think of this church at Ephesus in terms of steadfastness. They were patient. They had endured. They were a rock. But that's not all. There was a fourth characteristic. It says that they were a separated church. Look at verse 2. It says there in 2.2, it says that, and now you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. They were, number four, a separated church. They didn't tolerate 
sin. Beloved, this is not a user-friendly church. Ephesus stood for the truth. They were separated, if you will, from the world. They didn't tolerate sin. They could not bear with people who are evil. And today, most churches have no problem bearing with people who are evil. Most bookstores have no problem selling those who are false in doctrine, but not this church. They couldn't tolerate sin. They tested those, think about it, those who called themselves to be apostles and found them to be false. I just want you to know, beloved, this is not, at least at this point, a compromising church. They didn't mess around with heretics, okay? Now, I don't think really that should surprise us. Don't you remember their pedigree? I mean, if there's any church in all of the New Testament, this had to be the most famous one in its history. Remember as Jesus speaks to John on the island of Patmos, it's 40 years later since what I read you in the book of Acts. 40 years and they had a historic run. Some churches are known for their pastors. Nothing like this one. Some churches say this guy pastored there. In fact, I had a guy recite to me just this week the pastors who have pastored Moody Bible Church. Historic run, not like this one. You say, who did they have? Well, they had this guy named the Apostle Paul, <laughs> okay? Paul pastored this church, Acts 18, okay? The believers in this church, according to Acts 18, were discipled by Aquila. Believers in this church were taught by a man by the name of Apollos. This church was pastored by Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.1. They were instructed by the Apostle John, who's writing Revelation, but who also wrote the Gospel of John, who also wrote the Epistles of John. Listen, beloved, either directly or indirectly, they had been the recipients of about eight New Testament books. John, Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and Revelation. And Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote 1st Corinthians. Beloved, Ephesus was a bastion of truth. They were separated, if you will, not just from the world, but from false teachers. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 6. You say, who are they? Who are those ones they separated from in 2.2? In 2.6, and, and remember, this is the words of Jesus. He said, yet this you have. He said, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate, which is funny. There's mild-mannered, meek Jesus, whom seems to have no strength anymore in our own day, not wanting to offend, not wanting to be politically incorrect. Jesus himself says, I hate the Nicolaitans. And so do you. So he kudos them, if you will. Now you say, who were these false prophets? Who were these Nicolaitans? They're mentioned in one of the other seven churches. We just can't be sure who they are. But Irenaeus wrote of them, quote, that they lived lives of unrestrained indulgence, end of quotes. And so here this church, they're, they're separated. They are not duped. They're not weak. They're not lacking discernment. And that's not all. There's a fifth characteristic. They were a suffering church. Do you see it there in 2-3? He says, I know you are enduring, and there's that word again, enduring, patiently, and you're bearing up for my name's sake. In other words, Ephesus had not grown faint-hearted. They had endured. They were remaining under it. They, were, they had suffered. They kept the faith. In fact, Jesus said, you've not grown weary. That church was tireless. And he, did it. he said, you did it for my name's sake, which is, which is just kind of touching. Jesus said, you did it for me. You did it for me. In other words, put your vote in for Ephesus to be the church of the year. I mean, it would be just, frankly, just honest, kind of awesome. What if the Lord said that about our church? What, what if he gave the, 
this commendation or these, these, these blessings upon our church as we think of the compliments? What if he said that to, to Grace Church of the Valley? Listen, Grace Church of the Valley, you're a serving church, you're a sacrificing church, you're a steadfast church, you're a separated church, and you're a suffering church, and you did it all for my name, and you didn't grow weary. But oh, the heart seer sees it all. He says, I know everything, and he means everything. The one in chapter one who is the Alpha, the one who is the Omega, the one who is almighty, the one who is the glorified, risen Christ, saw a different diagnosis. He saw a heart problem. He saw into their system and a cancer was ravaging their body. And so I bring you here to the criticism of Ephesus. And you know it well. The criticism of Ephesus. Look what he says. Jesus is the speaking. But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what, what, what do you mean there? What, what does Jesus mean? I, I've got this against you. Would he say that to you this morning? To me? You, you do this, 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 but I, I, I've got this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. The word for abandon just means to quit. It means to forsake. They had not, they had not left the Lord, but they had lacked the fervency that they once had. Duty was mis began to become misplaced devotion. And the honeymoon was over. The thrill was gone. And at some point, in some ways, even though they're, they're complimented, they're going through the motions. And the Lord said this to them. One writer said, first love is the fervent, passionate love of a newly wedded couple. It pictures the romantic love that a couple feels when they first start dating. A chemistry happens. A mystical attraction occurs. A romance inflames. Two lives fall in love, get married, and become one, but something happens along the way. Somewhere in the daily routine of marriage, the honeymoon ceases, the children come, the career takes off, the business expands, the activities increase, the stresses multiply, and suddenly two people wake up complete strangers. It's quite a strong word to this church. You say, what was the first love they had lost? What is it, Scott? You, they abandoned it. They quit it. What, what, what was it? Well, I just, there's a number of things I could say, but I just think it was that affection for Christ himself. That affection for Christ. That love for Christ. It's more than that, but it's an affection. It's a love. I think it's intriguing, and certainly you remember that 30 years prior, maybe 40 years prior to the book of Revelation being written, Paul penned a letter to the church at Ephesus, as I mentioned, and he penned a prayer to the church at Ephesus that Christ, do you remember it, may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded, it says there, in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That's what he wrote to them. But 40 years later, something happened. 40 years later, it began to wane. Things begin to change. And though they're still complimented, he criticizes, criticizes them for this. Listen, 30 to 40 years had passed and a generation was raised that we might say knew not Joseph. And here, it knew not Jesus. The church at Ephesus, here's what's scary, was in the second generation of Christians. And now many years later, their love for Christ 
had grown cold, and though they had labored faithfully, they had lost that first love. Wives, just imagine a husband coming home and announcing to you, I don't love you anymore. I'll stay married. I'll pay the bills. I'll sleep in the house. I'll come to church, but that's about it. The love is gone. Would that be acceptable? We would say, oh, no, that's not acceptable. That wouldn't be acceptable at all, would it? I, I know families like that. Married on paper, but they, they even live in the same house. It's the saddest thing. Then if, if that's not acceptable, how can we say to the Lord, my love has cooled off towards you. I'll come to church. I'll throw a couple dollars into the offering. I'll serve you. But I just don't love you like I used to. See, what happened at the church at Ephesus is that doxology had slipped into cold orthodoxy. Ministry had become mechanical, and the love was gone. One writer said that they had lots of activity for Christ, but little intimacy with Christ. They had full heads, busy feet, but empty hearts. That's the criticism. You say, is there a cure for this? I was going to say, no, there isn't. Let's just pray. That's just how it is. No, there, of course there's a cure. There's a command, fourthly, a command given to Ephesus. Look at verse 5. You remember this. He says, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. There's a command given to them. And our Lord gives three strong commands. Okay? Because you might be saying, Scott, I, I just think that could be me. You say, what can I do? Well, put this command into practice. And I'll put them in R's. Okay? They're somewhat R's already. You're to remember. You're to repent. And the third one, we'll just say you're to return. But the first command is remember. He says, you see it there in five? Remember there where you have fallen. In other words, go back, beloved. Go back to those early days. Go back to the early days of your Christian life. Go back to the time of your salvation. Go back to the joy that you had in following Christ. Do you remember those days? Oh, listen, I can tell you the day when I got off my knees at 14. I can tell you the joy that just filled my heart. I can tell you how happy I was. I could tell that I didn't have a care in the world because the burden of my sin had been taken from me and I had struggled over this for a year. And when that burden was finally gone, all I can tell you is I was so pumped. I was so joyful. I was so happy. In fact, in those days, I witnessed to everybody who walked, moved, and breathed. In fact, I was even at times a fool for Christ. And I really mean a fool. Did I ever tell you that time that I saw that lady that looked real sad at the restaurant? Did I tell you about that? I saw a lady. I said, that was stupid. But I mean, I'm just telling you, that's where my heart was. I, was. I was getting some food and I looked over and I saw a lady and she looked like just so sad. In fact, she, I think she might have had some tears in her eyes and she's just staring off. And so I went up and I started to share with her. Well, that's what you do when you're excited about Christ. But I, I, nothing wrong in my motive at all, okay? But out of the back of this restaurant comes this man and says, what are you doing, boy? I go, he goes, this is my wife. <laughs> I said, oh, I was just down the street at the church and I'm just sharing with her. He was ticked. He said, let's go outside. Did I, did I ever tell you this? I said, you want to take me outside? And I was with part of the guys on my basketball team. So I'm with seven other guys. And my front line steps up, 6'8", six, 6'7". Six, 
I said, you want to go outside? I said, let's, let's go outside. I was going to go witness to him. So we went out of the restaurant, and, I, and nothing happened. I calmed him down, and I began to share with him why I was sharing with his wife. I said, I'm so sorry. I, did what, I'm not, I have nothing in my mind and heart in a wrong manner. I'm just, I wanted to tell you about the gospel. But listen, when you're new in Christ, and when you love Christ, you'll do anything for Christ. So Paul, here it says, Jesus says here to the Apostle John, I want you to remember, go back. You need to go back. Do you love him in the same way? Do you have the same passion for him? You know, there were times, sometimes when I would take my boys out and we'd sit in a restaurant. I go, boys, I call them real close. I said, look around, look around. And I say, they'd say, what, dad? I said, do you see him? Yeah, Dad, what do we see? I said, do you see that couple and that couple? And by the way, do you see that couple over there? Yeah, Dad, we see them. What do you want us to see? I said, well, are you really looking at them? I go, just watch them for a minute or two. Or watch them for three. And so they just sat there and watched, and we watched couples at restaurants eating without a word to each other. We just, I said, just, boys, they... I'm sure it wasn't like that at the beginning. I bet you that guy dated her. I bet you that guy was fired up when he picked her up. I bet you that guy got her flowers in the early days. I bet you there was a joy that filled his heart. And then what happens over the years, the difficulties, the trials, the physical infirmities, the financial loss begins to set in on a couple and then they look like two old married people that have no love and no passion. Well, here, listen, Jesus says to you, Listen, you go back to the beginning. You go back. You go back and remember. Go back to the fire. Go back to the zeal. Go back to the joy. Do you remember the musical? <laughs> it's old now. Fiddler on the Roof. There was a Russian peasant named, am I saying it right, Tevier? And he asked his wife a simple question. Do you love me? Do you love me? And you remember that his wife had never met Tevier until the day of their arranged wedding. And now after 25 years of marriage, he wants to talk of love. It, it actually sounded ridiculous to her, so foreign to her that she thinks that he has indigestion and that he ought to just lay down. How many of you have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof? Okay, a number. You remember that. And Tevier repeats the question in earnest, and she wonders at his thinking, then explains how hard she has worked in his life, cooking his meals, remember, washing his clothes, having his children. Still, it doesn't satisfy, so Tevier asks her again, and this time she falls back on the obvious that she's his wife. And even so, he persists, do you love me? I want to sing it, actually. Do you love me, you know? And after some reflection, she answers that she does indeed love him, realizing that all of her life hasn't just been meaningless busy work. She had worked hard because of her love for Tevier. Listen, another peasant, a first century carpenter from Galilee, asked his bride the same question. Do you love me? Still on fire for the Lord? You still remembering that day? Does your plate full of activities show your fervent love for the Lord? Or are we so busy, and you understand the expression here, so busy with our Bible studies, so busy with our evangelism, so busy for our service that our love for the Savior has grown cold. Listen, he's going to call you back. You say, if that's you, then listen, you remember, you go back. Secondly, you go back, it says, verse 5 there, to repent. It means to change direction. Do a 180 turn on all your known sin. Jesus is not asking you to pray about your sin. He's not asking you to feel guilty about your sin. He's not asking you to discuss your sin with your small group leader. He's asking you to repent of your sin. Get on your knees before God and say, God, break my heart again. God, help me fall in love with you. Help me love the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the writer, said, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
Let me ask, what has replaced your first love? And I had a grocery list, but I thought it sounded kind of moralistic, so I'll leave them out, okay? But what's replaced your first love? If there's sin in your life, then turn back wayward son or daughter. If you've been hiding some sin, you come to God and say, God, I've been hiding my cherished sin from you. And then you put it on the altar, you remember, and then you repent, and then there's a third command. It's interesting. Look at verse 5. He says there, do, interesting, the works you did at first. Okay? I'm going to just call it return. Remember, repent and return. Or do the works. And there's some question is, what were the works? It's hard to tell. Hard to tell what those works were. But I could probably say that from the book of Acts, you, you, when you begin to look at Acts and you see a pattern of those early believers, number one, they evangelized their community with the gospel as an expression of love. It's kind of funny here. He tells them to remember, to repent. But he says, I want you to get back what you did. I want you to go back and do what you did at the beginning. And what they did is I think they evangelized the lost. In Acts chapter 2, it was an expression of their love. Secondly, I think that early church set priorities which they were committed to as an expression of that love. You remember Acts 2, that they listened to the apostles' teaching. They were in prayer. They were in fellowship. They were in communion. Do you remember those days? Maybe that was you. You couldn't miss. You couldn't miss in the morning. Listen, some of you grew up in a heritage like that. You went on Sunday morning, and you went for Sunday school, and then you went to church service, and then you came back on Sunday night, and then you went on Wednesday night, and you loved it, and it was part of who you were, and maybe there's, there's an aspect here in the life of the body where they were a regular part of teaching and worship and prayer and the breaking of the bread and so forth in Acts 2.42. And maybe thirdly, when you look at Acts 2, maybe they just were putting the one another's into practice as an expression of love. But let me ask you, it could just be even more individual than that. What did you do at first? I mean, you might say to me, I was in the Word. You might say I was accountable to someone. You might have said, I loved going to church. You might say, I prayed. I served. I cared for people. And so here, he says, go back and do what you first did. And there was a love for Christ, a love for God, a love for the gospel, a love for evangelism. Christ says, return to me. Let me be real clear here. Our Lord is not satisfied with a faithful past. He demands a church to be zealous for him. You know, it could be that if you're not zealous for him, you need to make sure that you've come to Christ. That could be the case in an audience like this. But listen, he, he wants a church zealous for him. You say, well, Scott, if, if, if we don't repent, if we don't remember, if we don't, you know, repent, and if we don't return, what can happen? I'll tell you what will happen. Look at the text in verse 5. Jesus says in the middle of 5, he says, if not... Wow. He said, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Amazing. He said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. What's the purpose of a lampstand? It, it gives light. The churches in 120 are called lampstands. Churches are to give light and to be light. And he says to the church at Ephesus, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You say, well, what do you mean? I'm going to remove your blessing. I'm going to remove your influence. I'm going to remove your influence to the people that you need. In other words, this happens to church. They just kind of die out. And I'd never want our church to die. But you know, it's to be honest with you, if there's any church of the seven that we're most like, it's like Ephesus. Out of all the seven, we have the most characteristics of the things that we stand for. But beloved, I'm saying to you, by the Spirit of God, listen, if you've lost that first love, remember. 
repent and return or else Jesus Christ will remove his lampstand from us. You high schoolers, you junior hires, we are only one generation away from going extinct and continued blessing at GCV is not guaranteed. Okay, listen, if we don't repent, then we will be in danger of squandering all that we have. I don't want that to happen, and I know you don't either. We just sat down with a man this week for missions that's ministering in Dubai. Thrilling ministry in Dubai. A church where they're training pastors, and there's Pakistanis and Afghanistanis in there, and there's people from India in there. It's a melting part for that part of the globe, and He wants us to walk alongside him and there's a church of a thousand people giving glory to God and you look at the influence and the opportunity that they've been placed in and then I think of the influence and the opportunity that we've been placed in but listen, our future's not guaranteed divorced from this. Now now what's interesting here is he said this to the church, this can happen to whole churches. Have you ever gone into a church and it's just cold stone dead? Oh, I have. There's just no life in there. The Holy Spirit's not there. Jesus is not there. They've died, and they've died a slow death many years ago. Oh, the building's there. They paid that off many years ago, but there's nothing going on on the inside. Beloved, listen, in the Old Testament, when Israel got so impure and so sinful, remember they wrote across the top of the synagogue, what? Ichabod, the glory departed. And Jesus just gives a warning here. Listen, a church that loses its love is in danger of losing its light. You say, well, what what happened to the church at Ephesus? Well, you've been watching it all week, have you not? They've been on, on CNN and Fox for hours. Oh, not the church but you've been watching the coup in Turkey. Ephesus is modern-day Turkey. Izmir, that's Ephesus. There's nothing going on there. Can you fathom that? Paul pastored it. Apollos preached. John instructed. Timothy was in charge. And there's nothing there. In fact, if you went back in church history, by the Middle Ages, Ephesus was extinct almost. A traveler who was visiting the church at Ephesus in the Middle Ages found only three Christians. Unbelievable. They were turning the world upside down in Acts 19, creating a disturbance because so many people were coming to Christ that they were laying down their idols that the false prophets said, listen, we're going to lose our business. And now at one point in the Middle Ages, there were only three Christians. Trench said it this way of the church at Ephesus. He said, these have sunken in such ignorance and apathy as scarcely to have heard of the names of Paul and John. So sad. But watch this. There's a correction given. There's a challenge given. Would you look at it in verse 7? He says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? To the one who, I love this phrase, To the one who, do you see that? Conquers. I don't know if you're holding another translation. To the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's a challenge there for the church at Ephesus in their day. There's a challenge in our day as well. And he finishes with a promise given to them. A promise given to the conquerors. a, A promise given to the overcomers. And that's a great word. You know the word well. Probably hear it every week. It's the Greek word nikao. Obviously, we get our English word Nike from it. We have a whole line of clothing apparel that bear the name Nike. We have a Nike missile that's named after this. That's the word for conquerors. That's the word for overcomer. It speaks of a victorious Christian soldier in battle. 
Look what he says to that one in verse 7. He said, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Does that language call up the book of Genesis? Chapter 2 and chapter 3, where the cherubim after Adam had sinned were guarding that tree and guarding that place after sin that no one would get there. But Jesus now by his own authority, the resurrected, risen, excuse me, Lord Jesus Christ in all of his majesty and glory says that I will grant you to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. In other words, the victor has promised a spot at the banquet in God's paradise. He's promised a spot at the banquet in God's heaven, if you will. Now, the question you're probably asking is this, verse 7, to the one who conquers. And maybe you're asking is, who is that? Who's the conqueror? Who's the overcomer? What does that phrase mean? Is that a special class of Christians? I read this week that some people think it's the martyrs listed in another chapter of the book of Revelation that they overcame. And certainly that is how, in one aspect, the word is used. But I would ask you, is that you? Are you an overcomer? Are you a conqueror? Do you know who the overcomer and the conqueror is? Maybe this is worth it just alone today. Okay? Every child of God is an overcomer. Every single child of God is an overcomer, is a conqueror. You say, well, Scott, how can you say that? Well, let me show you with your eyes. Go back to John's other writing, 1 John 5. Do you remember this? Let me just show you this. This is not a special designation of people. The overcomer is the believer. Watch this. Do you remember this in 1 John 5, 4? For everyone who has been born of God, 1 John 5, 4, overcomes the world. If you've been born again, you've overcome the world. And this is the victory, verse 4, that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that, or who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Listen, beloved, if you're in Christ, you're an overcomer. If you're in Christ, that paradise which was lost in the garden would now be restored through generation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you're in here this morning, you're an overcomer. You say, well, pastor, that doesn't make very much sense. He's exhorting this church at Ephesus that they might lose, they've abandoned their love, that if they don't repent, he's going to remove their lampstand. Shouldn't he finish with some kind of strong exhortation? Shouldn't I bring fear to you? And my answer would be, oh, no, that's just the opposite with Jesus. He woos you by his grace. He woos you with a promise. He reminds you of what awaits you, that you will eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. He will put you at the banquet table if you're a believer and you've come to him and he's calling to you and Christ is waiting to you. And when he returned to Peter, he said, Peter, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And you know that he switched the words there of love from agape to phileo. And Jesus accepted his phileo. And listen, he'll accept yours today too. Listen, if you're not what you should be, listen, I'm not bringing a hammer to you. I'm reminding you how great it is. I'm reminding you that when we wake up today, we look on our news and we see three more officers were taken down uh, by a sniper in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We live in a fallen world, but listen, one day, beloved, we're going to sit and the tree of life is going to be there. And Jesus Christ is going to be there in his person. We're going to be in paradise with him. And we're going to overcome, not the fact that we've overcome, but that he's overcome. You say, well, what do you mean he's overcome? Look at Revelation 5. Let me just show you. And then we're all done. Okay. It says there in 5.5, one of the elders said to me in Revelation 5.5, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, there's our Greek word, conquered, nikaod so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. He's the one who conquered. And between the throne and the four living creatures in 5, 6, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. In other words, the one who was slain, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who has conquered sin and death for us. And so he's wooing you. He's wooing you. 
He's just saying, listen, come back to him. Remember, repent, and return, and do those deeds that you did at the beginning. Oh, there's a caution there that he's going to remove our lampstand. None of us want that to happen. And I'm not like a mean shepherd today thinking, ah, we're in danger of this. No, I'm just bringing, I'm, I, in fact, I'm thrilled what the Lord's doing. But listen, our church won't be manifested by a building with brick and mortar. Our church is going to be made full by the filling of the Spirit that you make up. It's when you're full of the Spirit in your heart and when I'm full of the Spirit in my heart and when our lives are so transformed by the gospel that we go out into the community and we begin to see what the Lord is doing. That's how churches grow. And so, beloved, listen, I'm not fearful, I'm, but I don't want to ever lose my passion for the Lord, right? I don't want my, my service to become mechanical. I don't want to go through the emotions, and I, I know you don't either. Remember that great song? It says, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would what? Die for me. Amazing love, I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. 